0: Um, Thank you to everybody that has sent us questions and I do apologize in advance we're not going to be able to answer them all because we've literally been sent you know almost 100 it's uh, it's been a really great response, but we would like to offer the opportunity to take up a free initial tax consult with our tax agents, Um, just giving you the opportunity to discuss any of your personal circumstances. So if you would like to do that, you can either contact uh, your Australian chamber uh, for the details or you can email me personally. So the email is julie at smats.net. Um, so, Steve, are you ready for them? We've got a few. Okay, <laughs> okay so first question. Um, I presume the changes to the residency rules would take effect in the twenty. 20- 22, 23 financial year, could the government legally backdate any new changes to include the 21, 22 financial year?
1: Well, again, until we see the legislation, you can't be absolute, but they have been very clear to say that it will not take effect until the 1st of July after it receives Royal Assent. So that would mean that, you know, they are doing it. And as I said, during the the presentation, the, the board has recommended that there is a long leeway. So the government may even push it out past 22, unlikely, but not impossible. But again, until we see the legislation, we won't know. But I would imagine that there is little to no chance of it being retrospective. I don't, I don't see that being a problem.
0: Next question, uh, where is the best place to stay updated with legislative changes um, and expat tax changes?
1: Yeah, probably with us. You know, so keep keep tuned with this. You know, we'll obviously keep you all informed. About, about attending this? We've got your names and email, so we'll keep sending you information. Um, the fighting fund. You know, we'll obviously have a special update for everyone in the fighting fund. Um, and you, 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 you know, it's very difficult. You've got to watch obviously the parliamentarian. You know, um, websites they they do you know put the law out. Obviously the news. You know. It's just whether someone picks it up, whether it's newsworthy and whether they're trying to you know, make it you know, populous or whether they're trying to keep it quiet, it's not easy.
0: Uh, question three, would you think it likely the 45 day ruling would include quarantine or travel time or would it be likely they'll make allowances for delayed or canceled flights? Um, and what if you're stuck in Australia due to COVID?
1: Yeah, well, again, the, the this this report came out post COVID, so or pre COVID, I should say. So those things weren't the issues at the time, but you know they they did have, even though COVID didn't exist, they do have this exclusion policy in there. So it is highly likely that something like quarantine, something like COVID, you know, travel adjustments, you know, would would um, you know not form part of the forty five days. You know, but again, we'll have to see what that says. That they they. they they have it as a specific recommendation to exclude. I think the, the wording I used was, you know, things that are out of your control. Now that is unlikely to include maybe a canceled flight, but it would be if it was canceled because it couldn't take off. So for example, it, it wouldn't be that the plane, you know, ha, you know, needed mechanical repairs, but it would be, for instance, the example they use in the report is that there was a volcano eruption and therefore it couldn't fly, you know, so, um, you know, and they obviously use that because Bali has done that a couple of times. The UK did that a couple of times. So that's not unusual anymore in the world. In fact, nothing's unusual anymore, is it?
0: Thanks. OK, so this next question is about the four factor test, specifically economic connections. Um, so if I have an apartment in Sydney and a bank account which pays the mortgage, would that be likely to be deemed an economic connection?
1: The apartment would be because that is a taxable Australian asset and therefore, you know, would form part of that connection. The bank account, not necessarily so because they they, they refer to it as significant. So, you know, um, there's no definition of what significant is, but significant, I would imagine, would be at least $10,000, $20,000, maybe more. But, um, you know, generally speaking, a property, yes, is economic ties. But, uh, you know, it's, it's um, you know, the bank account would have to be a reasonable proportion.
0: Would that include then like a superannuation fund or a share portfolio? The
1: superannuation fund is not included. You know, um, basically you're talking about, you know, um, you know, again, according to the the initial draft that you're talking about property, you're talking about family trust interests. Um, you know, they're the main things that are connected there. So, so superannuation is specifically suggested to be left out as our shares.
0: Um, and you mentioned property. So if you owned a property um, and it's not rented out, but it's only used by your family upon visiting Australia, would that be included?
1: It comes under two parts. That wouldn't be included under the economic interest. What that would be included would be under the accommodation available. So, you know, what what they've said is that it can be either one or the other. So if you've got a property like a holiday home that you can use, then that comes under the accommodation available factor test not the the economic interest factor test.
0: So as expats, is there anything that we can do at the moment to prepare, you know, in terms of your tax records or any preparation um, with the ATO as evidence um, to be classified as residents for tax purposes,
1: or non-residents for tax purposes? Well, like I say, at the moment, we're under the old regime. This is no no change to current thing. And, And the important thing is just, you know, making sure that you're seen to be genuinely living where you are. So, you know, that's having proper re- visa entitlement, having a proper accommodation that, you know, you lease or you own or you you share, but it's genuinely yours and yours alone. And, and obviously, you know, showing that you genuinely live somewhere. Now, you know, that I've, I've said for many, many years, virtually right from day one, you, you can't fake this stuff. you you know, everybody knows where they live. And that's why I've never had a problem with the current legislation, because you can pretend that you are not living in Australia or you're living abroad, but the facts usually catch up. And that's why, you know, even though they say it's subjective, I don't believe there's any problem with the current legislation. It's just that, you know, the players don't like the outcomes as such. And hence, I think the, the reason of this modernization is not to remove confusion it's to tilt the, the, the um, scales of justice heavily in the favour of the tax office and the government.
0: Uh, so, this question here uh, asks What are the implications for people with dual citizenship, such as working in Taiwan? And what if you've had to stay overseas um, due to COVID?
1: It, it has, any of the changes that are proposed won't have any implication whether you're dual citizen or anything like that. Um, You know, they're not looking at what your overseas situation is. They're gonna solely look at what your Australian situation is. Now, bear in mind that the key element is going to be that 45 days. Were you in Australia more than 45 days? For every single Australian expatriate, that is the sole thing. You know, when you're doing your travel, 45 days is gonna be your concern. And and if you imagine, this is why I'm so worried about it, because I, I might plan a lovely holiday back with my family, or say 25 days, no problems at all. You know, and I go back, it's well under the 45 days, that's all normal. And I get back to Singapore and the boss says, oh, look, we've got a problem in the Sydney office. I need you to go fix it. It's gonna take three or four weeks. You know, I can't really tell my boss to rack off. You know, if I do that, I'm probably gonna lose my job. So I'm gonna go, oh, but, 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 it, uh, uh. And I go, no, I don't care. You have to go and solve that problem, right? you're the only one that speaks Australian in the office. So off I go and I'm going to be stuck there 21 days after coming from a 25 day holiday with my family and boom, I'm at 46 and all of a sudden I'm exposed. And and that's where I think, you know, we have to have sensible exclusions that even exclude work. I mean, if you're genuinely coming down for work, that's an economic advantage to Australia. Why on earth would we want to disadvantage someone from coming back to do a multi-billion dollar deal to put Australia on the map. Why would we want to do that? I mean, it makes no sense. So I get it that they want to say, okay, are you being sneaky and you know sneaking around, trying to be a non-resident when you are? Go for those people. But you, know, you can do it in much more simple ways by you know, say excluding business so that you're not discouraging economic activity. And let's face it, we need that, it's, it's critical.
0: I've had a lot of questions uh, from people in the airline industry as well, asking, you know, what that means for arrivals and departures.
1: Absolutely. I think they're, you know, I mean, they're already being hammered completely. Uh, this, this is really putting them at risk because, you know, again, under the current proposals that are not law. So don't panic, don't, don't go off the rails yet. But, you know, that would say that if you come back and you do 10 flights to Australia with, with four-day layovers, then you, know, you better not come back to Australia for holidays. Yeah. And that, that is ludicrous. That is completely ludicrous. And, and again, you know, we're going against long-held conventions that if you're down in Australia, just for the sake of work, you know, there should be no discouragement or no implication on your residency because that is not a relocation. And therefore, you know, we, we are in danger with these proposals of oversimplification. And we have to be very, very clear to bring that to the attention of the government for everybody's protection.
0: Uh, So this question here, um, if I'm a non-resident for tax purposes, does that impact the type of property that I'm able to purchase in Australia, Um, such as only being able to buy off the plan property?
1: No, non-residency itself does not affect property purchasing. What does affect is your residency status. So for example, in Australia, we have what's called the Foreign Investment Review Board, which sets rules and the rules basically say that if you are not an Australian citizen or a permanent resident visa holder, then you cannot buy an established property. And hence, if you are a foreign national, you know, like for example, Chinese then or Mongolian, you know, then you would have to buy a brand new property. So either off the plan, recently completed, still owned by the developer or build a house. Okay, but if you are an Australian citizen, the fact that you are overseas does not make you a non-resident investor. You're still an Australian citizen and there are no restrictions on what you can buy. So that's all open. Now, bear in mind, you know, again, another thing that we all got hammered with for this is the fact that those poor non-residents, you know, non-Australian citizens, they now pay surcharges. So they pay stamp duty surcharges by the states. So the states are absolutely killing the pig there, but that's they have to kill the pig because they killed the golden goose. They were doing really well. And then they started charging all these extra surcharges and, and the sales just dropped off the cliff. So, you know, it's, it's a case in Australia that they're too greedy at times, you know, but as an Australian citizen or permanent resident visa holder, there is no restrictions on what you can buy. Uh,
0: next question. Can you please provide some clarity around double taxation? Agreements. So for example, um, if the Singapore rate was 22%, would your Australian tax bill be reduced by the amount of tax you paid in Singapore?
1: Yeah, the simplest way I can do this to answer a fairly complicated question is just say the double tax agreement, if if there is one in existence, just gives the the right um, of one country to tax it over the other. So for instance, if the double tax agreement applies and, and that rate is a Singapore rate, That would be a situation where the person was in Singapore for more than half the year, had a home in Singapore and earned the money in Singapore. And what that would mean is the double tax agreement would kick in that even if Australia said, oh, we want to tax you, that the double tax agreement would say, no, you don't have the right. We signed an agreement so you can't tax it. We're just taxing it in Singapore. Now that's different to if you were living in Australia for more than 183 days and earned money in Singapore. If you're in Australia more than 183 days, Australia taxes worldwide income and you'd be taxed on that Singapore income and you would get a credit for the 22%. So they are two different things. So it comes in, are you in Australia currently more than 183 days or not? Wherever you are, the majority of the time has the, the right to tax, right? But if you are in Australia and you earn overseas income, then you would get a credit for any tax paid. So you would only pay the extra, you wouldn't pay Australian tax and the 22%. You would just pay Australian tax less whatever was paid overseas. So you'd pay the difference.
0: Do you think expats are likely to reduce their current or future investments in Australian property if these proposed changes are implemented?
1: I I don't think they will. I don't think they will. And and the reason being is they're all going back eventually and, and everybody needs a future home. I certainly think there'll be a lot of backlash and anger where I think most of the money that the government will miss out on is, is literally tourism spend. If you can imagine the Australian expat in a normal world, remember pre-COVID, you know, expats go home, they see their family, they catch up, they see their friends, they go into tour around, they do stuff, they spend money there, they buy investment properties, they, they tour, their holiday. The holiday money, I think, is a significant risk, and that is substantial. You know, um, the investment... You know, maybe there'll be a period where there'll be grumpiness and people will slow down, no doubt. But the, the truth of the matter is it's something that you need and something that you want. So eventually you'll get over your grumpiness and you'll just reluctantly do it. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it's certainly you know tick people off. But it just means that everybody is going to be looking very closely at their diary, you know. And this is the sad thing, you know. It's going to be a situation where, you know, You're basically forced into keeping a really close eye on your diary and not going back for 45 days.
0: Um, If the changes do take effect, do you think it may be possible to request a private ruling for circumstances such as return for a sick or ageing relative, children attending university or those caught up in divorce proceedings and having to attend court?
1: Yeah, look, I don't think you'll need to do a private ruling. Um, The the whole point of the the whole mission here of the Board of Tax in doing this modernisation change is to stop the need for people to do things like private rulings. So in theory, the legislation should be quite clear in determining what would be classed as time out of your control. So what would be those exclusions, whether it be divorce, whether it be the death of a family member, et cetera, Okay. So um, the, the intention here is for, the, for people to be able to say, oh, look, there it is in black and white, yes or no, they don't need to go get a ruling. So um, I, I wouldn't think that a ruling would make any difference. And again, you know, I have heard that there is some accountants that are saying, oh, come and see me get a ruling. That is completely irrelevant at this point. You can't get a ruling for legislation that doesn't exist. So don't bite at that, don't go waste your money, don't spend any money doing something that would be irrelevant. You know, rulings, you know, they're non-binding in any case. And again, a good tax advisor should be able to tell you your circumstances. And only if he says there is gray because, should you seek a ruling, right? Because that because can get clarified. But a good tax advisor should be able to look at your situation and say, you are clearly this, or you are clearly that. If there's any grey, it should be stipulated, and that's what you should go get a ruling on, but it should be something that is clear and obvious.
0: And um, this is a good question. Uh, why don't you think the government or the ATO sought participation from the expat groups before announcing these proposed changes?
1: Because we don't live in Canberra. <laughs> you know, this is the problem. These guys are completely self-obsessed. So. You know, Canberra is its own little world. So they've gone and consulted the experts in the industry by going to the large accounting firms that, you know, purport to know this stuff. But, you know, ironically, again, if you read the report, the, the main reason they're trying to modernize is they're trying to protect individual taxpayers from extortionate fees from getting advice. And where did they go to get the, the help? For, to the people that are charging extortionate fees to give the advice. So to me, it's a bit of an oxymoron there. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's just, you know, sometimes it's the bleeding obvious that gets missed. And, and the fact that they didn't go and appropriately seek, you know, feedback from people of, of knowledge and understanding was just a simplicity thing. They, they, you know, they are in their own little bubble. And and I don't think it was anything more than that. I don't think it was intentional. I just think it's, oh, we're here, they'll find us.
0: Um, So this is probably the most common question of the, of today. Um, Will the 45 days likely be cumulative or consecutive? Um, And will it be a calendar year or the financial year?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely cumulative. It's not consecutive. Consecutive has nothing to do with it. So it's years in there and they're they're looking at it on a 12 month basis. So, you know, they they will look at, you know, obviously financial year, but they're looking at having a rolling 12 month. So, um, you know, it's going to be, Probably a combination of both. I think you'll find that the 45 days will be in a financial year, and then they'll be looking at the other tests. You know, 45 days per year and all the rest of it. So it's definitely cumulative, and that's why you've got to be careful. And that example I said of the person that goes on holidays, then gets an unexpected demand to go back for whatever reason, they're the ones that are in real trouble here. You know, um, and that's 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 why to me the 45 days seems extremely unrealistic.
0: Thank you. Um, A question our accountants often get asked is um, if you're living overseas as an Aussie expat, what do you get taxed on and how will the Australian government know what you earn and can you just lie about it?
1: Yeah, well, up until recent years, the only thing that was subject to tax in Australia if you are a genuine Aussie expat, and that is someone that is intending to live overseas for more than two years and has genuinely relocated their life. Okay, you're only taxed on Australian activity. And basically the only real thing that is, is if you've got a rental property in Australia. So for 99.9% of people, it would only be the rent that they receive on their property. Now, if you received a director's fee, or if you did some wages when you were on holidays, then that would also be subject to tax So, earnings that you had in Australia. But anything you earn overseas would be excluded. You know, dividends from shares are excluded, capital gains on shares are excluded. You know, it's it's basically just your property, both income and capital gains that is the main consideration. You know, know, so you don't need to worry about the government coming and getting you. They're not trying to, they don't, you know, they're not pretending to try and tax you on this. They're trying to say, are you really overseas? So nothing is changing in regards to that and you don't have to declare. Now, having said that, the only thing to bear in mind that they do need to know your income for is if you did have any university loans. So if you've got any loans under the old HECS scheme for old people like me or HELP for the younger people like you, Julie. You know, no, um, HECS. <laughs> they, they do they do have the right now. They changed the rules a few years ago to say that they would assess your HELP repayments based on your offshore income. So only if you have a HELP loan do you need to submit your income to the Australian authorities and they calculate your repayment on the offshore income. It is not a tax, but it is a a method of calculation of what you have to pay back under your loan scheme for university. That's the only time you have to declare your income if you're genuinely living abroad.
0: Adult dependent children, such as those going to uni, would they be considered Australian family?
1: Uh, they have defined it, and again, we have to wait till the legislation comes out, but they have defined it as 18 or younger. So yeah. basically, maybe the first year they go to uni, they'll be captured. But, um, you know, once they're over 18, then they're looking at excluding. Now, again, they, they have talked to, you know, should it be 25 or should it be dependents or whatever. But at this stage, their, their recommendation is your your spouse, and children 18 or younger.
0: So will the factor test include company-provided accommodation?
1: Um, In terms of in Australia, you mean? In Australia, yeah. Yeah, it's probably not, probably not. Um, It doesn't include hotel. So, you know, anything that's a hotel would not be included anyways. Um, You know, and if it's it's company-provided, that would probably be sufficient disconnection. You know, um, accommodation available, they're looking at, you know, like I say, if it's a, a rental lease that you've taken, if it's a holiday home, if it's your previous home that you've left vacant so you can still use it. So they're looking for, you know, a right to occupy. So just by definition, if the company provided it, it's the company that has the right to occupy rather than yourself. They're just, you know, allowing you to use it. So I would imagine that that would be excluded under that factor test.
0: Thank you so much. And I just want to give um, everyone a huge thank you for all the questions that we've received. Um, um, if you do have any other questions, uh, feel free to email me directly. So, julie at smats.net, um, or you can email your chambers and they can pass them on to me.
1: You had a great attendance. It was fantastic to have so many people join us. So, I really, really appreciate everyone giving up their time.
0: Thank you so much, guys. Enjoy the rest of your day.